Okay, Peter. Well, welcome. I'm glad that you're here. Uh, uh, from what you've said, it sounds like that you would like to get uh, involved on a kind of a long-term basis. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Uh, that's that's good. Uh, and so, uh, actually, I like that better. Some people call just one time. Some people call four or five times and really get down what we're talking about. Then I don't see them much. But I've got quite a number of students who call on a regular basis over and over and over again. And that's where we really develop the Dhamma and really develop the friendship because we're not doing it from, uh, let us say, a set syllabus. That we're just taking things as they go, but in the beginning we should start with a uh, with a, a, a bit of a syllabus. Plus, you can ask questions, and when you ask questions, liable to go off anywhere. Okay. Okay. But the very very first place to start is in uh, the teachings of the Buddha, where he said once in a particular sutta uh, that he only teaches one thing, and that is he teaches Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. You probably have heard that phrase before. He teaches suffering and the end of suffering, and that uh, when that's expanded just a little bit, it expands into the Four Noble Truths. Now, one thing about this sutta that he says that in is uh, a sutta to where um, uh, a Buddhist monk at the time was making statements that the other monks disagreed with, and so they called the Buddha, and the Buddha summoned uh, this monk and uh, had him repeat what he had to say. And when uh, the, this monk said what he had to say, the Buddha chastised him and then went off into a long discourse about things. And that what this monk was claiming was is that the things that the Buddha says are obstructions of the mind are not really obstructions of the mind. All right? And this is one of the very, very many places where the Buddha is absolutely clear that there is a particular part of the practice that many people, because of the sutta, I mean, many people are stuck into the position of thinking that the obstructions to meditation are not really obstructions, and it's okay for them to do that. Uh, another way of thinking about it, then, is the idea of Dukkha Naroda, and Dukkha and Dukkha Naroda is, is that as we uh, gain skill in wisdom, as we gain skill in discernment and being able to see what is what and what, uh, what are the causes and the effects, and that's the basic uh, underlying premise of the teaching of the Buddha is causes and effects, that in fact the second noble truth is the cause of suffering. And so you can see how important that idea of cause and effect is, and in fact all of medical science and in fact all of science is built upon cause and effect. If you bring this group of causes together, this will be the effect. And right. we can see that in all kinds of ways, all right? That in fact, even an automobile engine can't work without all of the cause and effect equipment in the right order, in the right place, put together so that uh, the causes are just right, so that the effect is there. Okay. I get that. Okay. Right. 
and this is also true in what is called general systems theory. And general systems theory is uh, under the premise that the whole of the system is greater than the sum of the parts. And a way to think about that is that when the parts, all of the parts that are needed come together, then those causes that come together bring about an effect. And that effect does not uh, happen when these parts, these pieces, these causes are not put in the right combination. But when they come together in the right combination, then something new is added to it, and that is the effect. And we can see sometimes that uh, it only takes one cause. But then if we look at it a little deeper, we can find out, no, there's sometimes often more than one cause for things. But an example of that would be uh, just a regular fire um, that has to have a fuel. But we also know, in fact, that I learned in school that a fire requires three things, not just the fuel, because if you had just the fuel, like, for instance, you go to the gas station uh, or the petrol pump or whatever like that, why isn't the place already burned down? Right. <laughs> right. Okay. So that means that, no, we can have the fuel without other conditions to it, and therefore there is no fire. But when all the conditions come, which means that you've got to have oxygen, you've got to have a spark, or you've got to have a temperature rise, and then you have to have the fuel. And when all three of those things come together, you have a fire. Now, the Buddha was really big on fires in the sense of thinking about that every fire has to have a fuel. What fires have no fuel? Yeah, right. Right. And, and this is, in fact, the reason why Buddhism is not magical. Because magical thinking is, is that a fire can burn without any fuel. For instance, the soul. I get that. Okay. Right. Or other magical things, all right? Like, uh, um, uh, Sort of like that even a suitcase has to have a handle. Right? If it doesn't have a handle on it, it's not a suitcase, it's just a fancy box. <laughs> and a backpack has to have straps to it. Okay, so we got to be able to grasp hold of this thing. And that grasping is also part of the fuel that, that is there in order to have a fire. So getting back now to the concept of what the Buddha taught was Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda, means that there is a cause for it, and the three causes to come together of uh, Dukkha is that we want things that we don't have, which is most common. Another one is, is that we put up with stuff that we don't want to put up with, which is just another form, in fact, of wanting things we don't have. So, for instance, if the dogs are barking and you want them to shut up, you still want them to shut up. So you want something they don't, that you don't have. So it doesn't matter whether you come from liking or not liking. It's all a matter of wanting things that we don't have. Okay. And that we want things ignorantly. Because if we knew that we wanted something that we didn't have and that we don't have it, why should I want it? Why should I be in a state of deprivation? Because if I want something I don't have, then I'm incomplete. I'm not whole. I'm not good enough. I need it. Mm -hmm. 
The more I wanted, the more I needed, the more I needed, the more incomplete and out of service I am. I get that, okay. Uh-huh. And when we get what we want, we think that that's going to be satisfaction, but everything is temporary. Anything that you do get, and you got something because it made you happy, well, you're going to lose it. And then, when you lose it, you're going to be unhappy again. So your happiness, in fact, is not dependent upon that item. It depends upon the state of mind that we're in. And that when we think ignorantly that that item that I want brings me completion and happiness and joy, that's ignorance. Mm -hmm. Trying to get what we don't have is an ignorant act. Okay, right. I get that. Okay. All right. And so this is so important because almost everyone who practices meditation wants something they don't have. That's why they meditate. Mm -hmm. So for most people, meditation starts out as adding new suffering and dukkha mm -hmm. to an already unsufferable mix of suffering and dukkha. And you mean attachment to jhana, for example, like that? Exactly. Wanting something that you don't have. Okay. So and just I a good feeling. That different as opposed to attaching to a jhana, because attaching to a jhana is a pretty good thing to do. Once you're in it, you want to stay there. Mm -hmm. However, not having it and wanting it is a guarantee that you're not going to get it. Because the state of jhana, the first jhana, is being completely satisfied. Mm. And so we have to get ourselves into a state of satisfaction. And that's going to take something. Because most people are trained in Western meditation missing two primary ingredients, two major ingredients that we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, and so when they uh, practice missing some ingredients, they wind up with uh, styles of practice that are called denoting or awareness or mindfulness. These are the kind of things that uh, have become Western Buddhism. And these are, in fact, definitions of why Western Buddhism is a failure and meditation is a failure. Is because they're practicing something that, uh, and they're not being, uh, let us say, fully educated into what really is needed. Mm -hmm. um, so let's start with the idea then that Dukkha Dukkha Naroda is what the Buddha teaches. It unpacks into the Four Noble Truths. And the very first Noble Truth is the Noble Truth of there is dissatisfaction. Now, we don't have to say in what, because every time that we put in something, like uh, uh, life is suffering, or uh, there is suffering in life, then we're making a mistake. Mm. But the real way that to talk about the first noble truth is, is that suffering or dukkha actually exists. And I would prefer the uh, translation to be the word dissatisfaction as opposed to suffering. 
uh, suffering means a great, great big thing. And because it's a great, great big thing, then that means that everyone would think that suffering would be very easy to see. But when dukkha is more than suffering, when it's dissatisfaction, even slight dissatisfaction, that means that now we have to go through the skill process of discernment so that we can find out the little things as well as the really big ones. Okay. okay. So this is the whole idea then, because uh, I'm actually working with the Eightfold Noble Path already in talking about dukkha because we have one's right view. What is one's right view is, is to do an investigation and um, examination to find out, is this what's in the mind right now? What's been in the body? What are we feeling? Is this dukkha? And if it is, we're going to immediately change it from mm -hmm. dukkha to dukkha naroda. And this is one of the things that is missing in Western practice, and that is the effort that it takes to remove unwholesomeness. Can I pose a question? Yes. So it means that, like, if I'm in jhana during meditation, then I should also see the the suffering in it because it will be over at any time, and I will absolutely pray for it. not, absolutely not. Seeing the dukkha so that it can be avoided is what the ordinary mind needs to do. Once you have seen the dukkha and have avoided it, mm. now this is noble. Mm. Okay, okay, because you have now avoided it. And so right now, because you have avoided it, it's gone. It's in the past. Mm. And therefore, it is not here now. It's not visible. It's not clearly mm. to be seen. And therefore, it is not part of our noting process. That, in mm. fact, this is uh, the reason why, uh, oh, mindfulness-based stress reduction, Zen, Vajrayana, Mahasi, uh, all of these systems come down to the idea of being aware, being mindful, or noting what's going on. And this is why they fail is because they do not see what they do see. They just see it as this is it. Mm. Yeah. They do not see that it is, in fact, dukkha. And then they do not take the right effort to remove it. Okay. This is where the real teachings of the Buddha is different than the teachings of Western Buddhism. Western Buddhism is uh, all about noting and awareness and whatever it is. Mm. Okay. So here the, here the meditator goes right into the city dump. And he is completely surrounded by garbage. And many people are willing to do that. And so they go in and they start to sort things out as a meditator in their own personal city dump. And this is a jar and this is a can and this is newspaper and this is garbage and this is more filth and, you know, and we're out there sorting and separating, taking note of every little thing that we see and we're still living in a city dump. Garbage. The right place to, the way to practice is, is when we recognize that we're in the city dump, get out. Get out of the city dump. Don't stay there. So, what we're actually talking about is, um, hang on a second. Uh, yeah, yeah, sure.
Someone's going to join our call. Is that all right? That is all right. Sure. Okay, please join the call. All right. So, in talking about the Four Noble Truths, what that means is, is that we have to do enough investigation to see what is, in fact, Dukkha, and wanting something that we don't have, and we do so ignorantly, is suffering. Therefore, if we see something that we don't have, but we see that wisely, then there's no reason to suffer. What we can do is throw that desire and want out of the mind. I don't need that right now. I'm okay without it. I don't have to think about that right now. Mm. Okay. So this is where we're going uh, is the idea of, okay, Keyshawn is going to join Hello, Keyshawn. Hey. This is uh, I don't have any sound. Peter in Germany. And Hello, friends in Chicago. Okay. Uh, uh, Keyshawn, uh, Peter is a new student, and okay. so we're just starting off, and so you're welcome to listen along and comment as you choose. Okay. Okay. And if you have later, if you have any questions, then we can talk. I'll uh, I'll have to join Peter and become and being a new student today. All right. Okay. We had just started talking about the four noble truths as unpacking the very uh, central teaching of the Buddha is dukkha, dukkha naroda. And one thing, Peter, I'd like to add that we, when we talk about dukkha, dukkha naroda, we're talking about something that happens in less time than it takes to say the words dukkha, dukkha naroda. That's a long time period. Okay. But most Westerners see the word dukkha, dukkha naroda as a life's goal, something to be practiced towards rather than something to do right now. Okay. That's a major change from our uh, normal way of thinking, is, is that we're beginning to work now at the level of mind moments rather than at the level of years. This is how we're practicing. So when we talk about Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda, we're talking about as soon as we can see it, we want to come out of it. It's not a long time process. So in that regard, many uh, teachers in, in Western Buddhism don't talk very much about the third noble truth. And the reason they don't talk about it much is because they never get around to it. But we should introduce the students from the very, very beginning that there's this third noble truth does exist. There are times in your day where you are not suffering. And so you need to start remarking about that is the times when you are and the times that you're not so that you can get a better understanding of what's going on. This requires more than just awareness. This takes attention. This takes um, an investigation. This is very active. Uh, okay. And then, in fact, one of the students that I have, 
used the, uh, the, uh, the phrase having skin in the game. And I like that, okay? Uh, there's another one uh, that's used in uh, normal society is put your money where your mouth is. Okay? What we're actually meaning by this is this is an active meditation. This is not passive. Western Buddhism is taught as a passive investigation in the sense of noticing, noting, mm -hmm. awareness, uh, mindfulness practices uh, with the hope that if you do notice the dukkha or the student will notice the dukkha, he'll notice it and eventually notice it as dukkha. And then eventually after that, he'll figure out, oh, I don't have to do this right now. Mm. And so we can leave it for the student to figure it out for themselves. But sometimes students will practice 20 years without figuring out that, hey, we can do something about this. Once we see what's going on, we can bring it to a close. We can come into the third noble truth and know that we're in the third noble truth the first time that we sit down. Okay. First time we start practice, we can actually get ourselves into the third noble truth. There is no reason to say that, oh, this is a long-term process that takes 10 or 20 or 30 years. Yes, it can take that long when people are not practicing at all. That's the thing that's really amazing about the Dhamma, that I've known monks that have done no practice at all for 20, 30 years, and they wind up being marvelous human beings in their old age. Why? They've just been in the Dhamma long enough. They're not doing anything in particular. It does rub off. When you have... Um, it's like this. If you live your life in a bar, then you too will be a bar fly. You too will be a lounge lizard. If you live your life in prison, then you will become a convict. You will become a prisoner. If you live your life with nobles, with high-quality human beings, and begin to fit in with them and, and uh, uh, listen to them and whatnot like that, you'll become one of them also. This is the value of the Sangha itself, is, is that monks become really top-notch quality human beings over time without having to put any effort at all in. But the question about it then the Buddha would ask is, yeah, that's going to take you 20 years, maybe 30 years. And if you work really, really hard, it may take you 50 years. <laughs> so if I get you right, then during meditation, there are two processes. One, one the, the noting, and the second one is seeing the dukkha in the noting, or in the present aspect. I, I would go so far as to say that the noting, if we're going to do noting and call it noting, noting is to be done once the mind is completely free from hindrances. Mm. That noting is not done when there are hindrances. When there are hindrances, the noting is 1% uh, and throwing that hindrance out is the 99%. Ah, okay. So during meditation, I see the hindrances and let go of them until I'm completely I free. I wouldn't say let go because that's kind of passive. Mm. Okay. I would say that they have to be flung out. 
tossed out, <laughs> intentionally removed. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and that uh, the intentional removing means that we're going to put in the mind a wholesome thought. Mm. A lot of people in Western Buddhism think that the goal is to stop the mind or to bring the mind to a stop. All right. And yet they don't have the skills to do that at all. And so they wind up being frustrated trying to do something that they have no skills in doing. Hmm. That would be like having a freighter, a, a giant boat, or maybe even a large fishing vessel, maybe even a little schooner. How about even a rowboat? Which of those boats do you know of have good, solid, effective brakes? Do boats have brakes? Not what the one that you know of have brakes. Not not the one that put a stop to all the uh, the transportation couple months back. Oh, but that wasn't not brakes. That, that was running into the side. <laughs> that, that was going into the ditch. <laughs> they could have used some brakes. In fact, the whole point of brakes on a boat would be so that you don't run it into the ditch. You don't run it into the harbor. Right. Yeah. And yet there are no brakes on a boat, no brakes on a ship. So how do the big ships avoid catastrophes? Because the, uh, the helmsman is looking out in advance, looking at what's going on and making a small change to the wheel so that the boat turns aside. Mm -hmm. That's what they do in traffic. This is what we need to do in the mind. We don't have the skill to stop the mind. We don't have brakes, but we do have the skill to steer the mind out of the unwholesome into the wholesome. This is one's right effort. Mm. Okay. Now, when people talk about mindfulness or awareness, they're pointing back to uh, a Pali word that's called sati. And that sati is a very important skill, but let's talk about it um, in, in a way that's really useful. And that is that sati is the ability to wake up and remember. Basically, sati is the skill of coming into the present moment, waking up right now. In the sense of when we're in the here now, now we can see what's in the mind. If we are thinking in the past and we're in the past, we're living in the past, we're dwelling in the past, we are the past. But with sati, we can wake up and we say, I'm not in the past. Here I am, right here, right now. Okay. And that, that, that sati, um, there are various degrees or grades of it. And I would say that it has maybe three qualities. The first quality is going to be how often does it come up? The more often that it comes up, the more often that you wake up to be here now, the more often you can do an investigation, take on right view, the more often you can actually take the right effort. Then in fact, if you doesn't matter what skills you have, if you forget to, to use those skills, it's a, let's say that you're a, um, uh, a sheriff in the Old West, the gunslinger kind, with his gun, and he walks up to the, cr to the criminal, and the criminal uh, stands back and he's ready, you know, and they have a duel right there, and the criminal just shoots the sheriff right in the shoulder, right in the, right in the chest, 
And they go over and says, well, what happened? And he says, oh, I forgot to draw my gun. I forgot. <laughs> okay. Well, that's life. We go around living that life our whole time. We forget to bring up our equipment. We forget to apply our skills. And because of that, we get shot. We get wounded. So, if we can remember to apply the Eightfold Noble Path, this is the application of the Eightfold Noble Path, because this is what the Eightfold Noble Path is, as you probably already know, is, is that there is a method to become completely free from suffering in this present moment. Right now, neither one of you look like you're really suffering at all. Yeah, right. Now that I see you smiling, I'm sure you're not. <laughs> but we do get worried. We do go into unhappiness. We do find sorrow. We do remember the past and feel bad about it. We do remember mm -hmm. the past and remember something that we used to have and now we don't have it anymore. And so we long for something of the past. Or we look in the past and we see unfinished work to be done. And now that we've got to make a plan for the future to go do the work that we saw when we were mucking around in the past. But if you stay in the present moment, you've got no work to do. Then, in fact, the most important work that we ever do is when we finish work. When we can say the job has been well done. My job is finished here, and now we can relax. So developing the attitude that the job is finished, there's nothing to do, no place to go, everything is already done, everything is easy going, then you can go about your life very comfortably and happily enjoying it. But if you're like a doctor, oh, I've got to go to that patient. Oh, I've got to go see this one. Oh, I've got to go do that. Oh, I've got to fill out these forms. Oh, I've got to do this. Oh, I've got to do that nurse. Oh, I've got to... <laughs> <laughs> when we get into that kind of mentality, we get rushed. Well, we learn that skill of getting into a rush when we're kids. Our society almost requires that our children do things that they're told to do, whether they want to do them or not, but they got to do them on time. And so we get into a rush of doing things we don't really want to do. And that's our lives. Okay. And, and we do it ignorantly. And so now that's the second noble truth. We've got all the causes and conditions we need to bring together uh, dissatisfaction. And our investigation, our, our right view, our developing wisdom then, is going to be the development of this discernment of knowing for sure what little subtle things are dukkha and what things are wholesome. So the Buddha makes that distinction often. He uses words like obstructions or dukkha, dukkha naroda. Dukkha naroda, the word Dukkha Naroda also can be used as the word Sukha, and the word Sukha is the state of pleasure, the state of well-being, the state of safety and security, and that's just the opposite of Dukkha. So we should be able to get ourselves into that kind of state, and now we're free from Dukkha. And that's all the Buddha teaches. He does not teach airy-fairy, heavens, hells, uh, magic, powers, or anything. This is all about well-being, 
I'm sure as a doctor, you're interested in that. So this is what this is all about, is gaining, gaining ourselves as a sense of well-being. And if people are meditating, wanting enlightenment or something that they don't have, they're not in a state of well-being. We have to find a way of getting ourselves into a state of well-being. And this is why we practice the Eightfold Noble Path the way that we do. And the secret ingredient in there is one's right effort. This is the one that's missing in almost all of them. And because of this missing ingredient, they never get around to the fourth ingredient. So they will stay with uh, uh, a little bit of woke, a little bit of uh, um, mindfulness, or a little bit of sati, and also a little bit of investigation. They note. But they just start off to remember to note. That's all they're doing to remember to pay attention, to remember to uh, do mindfulness-based stress reduction, or to remember to pay attention. This is what they do. So they've got two items of the Eightfold Noble Path going. There is a third item that they need to run. Uh, and in fact, in the Sutta, uh, on the Eightfold Noble Path, the Buddha says that right sati, right effort, and right of you run and circle around each other. They're deeply interrelated. And in the sense that we have to remember to investigate. But when we investigate and see that our views are wrong or our ideas are wrong or even our thoughts are wrong, then we have to take the effort to change those things. Now, over time, our views will change. And one of the ways that views change is from selfishness to altruism, from uh, selfishness to open-heartedness. This is one of the attitudes to change. Another attitude to change is from being a victim into being a winner, from, the self, from having no confidence and in the state of suffering into being free from suffering and completely confident that I can remain that way. Okay, so this is how things begin to change, but in the beginning, um, right view is really all about to know the difference between what is dukkha and what is not. And as that skill grows, the side of dukkha, let's imagine that there's kind of a, um, uh, a continuum here, and on this side uh, is all dukkha, and on this side is no dukkha. Someplace in there, everyone draws their own line, and everything on this side is dukkha, and on this side, everything is not dukkha. But as we grow in our dis uh, discernment, as our skill improves, the line moves so that we move further and further to the really, really wholesome, and leaving the mixed wholesome and unwholesome aside as we progress. Okay, so one's discernment increases so that things that used to not look like dukkha, and we can now see them as dukkha. And once we see these things as dangerous, now we can plot the escape. You can see exactly how that happens. The Buddha talks about it in the sense that people normally can only see the gratification. Let's see that I'm doing this over here. And when I see that, I like it. But I'm not paying close attention to the reality of the situation. But sometime or another, someone will help me to see that 
you got to take a look at what's going on there. And when you do, you recognize that's actually not just gratifying, it's also dangerous. And when we see the danger in it, then we can escape from it. But until we see the danger, we can't make the escape. We only see the gratification. And many circumstances, three. Go ahead. Would you say that it takes uh, more or less effort as you move the line, you see more dukkha, so there's more to be thrown out. But maybe you react to it a little bit easier if you see it as dukkha, then it's like easier effort to not <laughs> touch something so hot. Okay, one skill of um, right effort, it's a skill. And as it develops, it develops uh, from real effort into energetic. It eventually becomes almost like a jack-in-the-box. As soon as the thing comes up, the jack pops right out. Okay, what is that jack then would be the hindrance. It just comes right out. In the beginning, it feels like we've got to go stick our hand in the box and feel around and grab that jack, and then yank him out. But as we gain skill, all we have to do is open the box and out pops the jack. That's the way of looking at it is, is that the skill develops. The same thing you can see in the, in the weightlifting room, that the beginner comes in and struggles with a two kilo dumbbell. But after a year, he's, he doesn't want a two kilo dumbbell. That's too easy for him. Now he wants a five kilo dumbbell. 10 pound dumbbells, that's work. <laughs> <laughs> 12 pounds, okay, so that's a lot of work, a, t uh, a five uh, kilo dumbbell. So uh, this is where we we're talking about it. It's not like that the more uh, uh, unwholesome things we see, but rather if we've already trained the mind, if this is the range and we've already set our boundary here because we've already gained skill at throwing all of this stuff out, we've got that skill. Now the new skill to be developed is for this part of the dukkha. And when we come up to there, now all of this is past skill. We've got that. So this is why it actually gets easier because there's less to throw out. And when you get all the way up there, nothing to do. And this work, yeah. and this work is like the same during meditation and also during the day that you are really aware of what is going on and seeing the dukkha in it. Yes. Um, so the work is not different during the day and during meditation, but maybe during meditation you are more aware of that. Let us say that a sitting practice, when someone says, all right, for this particular period of time, I'm going to sit in this particular way, in this particular posture, to do something. That's kind of like an anchor. An example of that would be if, if the child goes and sits on the piano bench in front of the piano, he's much more likely to practice the piano than if he's out in the yard. Okay, so we're merely talking about physical anchors, just getting ourselves into the place to where we, we are indicating to ourselves, we're going to do this. Okay, what is that we're going to do this is the sati that comes up. The ah, okay, it's the wake up. Right? Like you got to play to win. Go ahead. 
So you got to play to win. I think it looks like a Vegas. <laughs> right. We got to have skin in this game. Is in fact the way of, of thinking about it. Is this is going to take some effort. And in the beginning, there's a, a quite a lot of effort. Uh, let me give you the example of what I mean. You're standing in the road, and a big truck is bearing down on you, maybe even blowing his horn. And we can see that truck coming. There are three things to do with that truck coming. One is we can stand there and let it run over us. That's the ordinary mind. Or the, the other thing is to try to stop the truck. This is what I call pulling a Popeye. You know, Popeye the Sailor Man, yeah, 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 with uh, eating the spinach and, and all of that. And what is he going to do? He's going to take those great big arms he's got and hold them out and stop that truck. Right? That's what most people try to do. They get run over anyway, but at least they're putting in a huge amount of effort. This is normal meditation, trying to stop the mind. There's another way of doing it. The one's right effort is to merely get out of the road. Stand aside. Let that thing pass and be in the past. Okay, so this is one's right effort is to get out of the way of the unwholesome thoughts. And is this right effort always the same, like doing meta if you are feeling a defilement that or... All right. Well, I would say that metta, yes, every student who asks that question, I would say metta must be considered a wholesome thought. There's no other way around it. However, people can do metta meditation and still have unwholesome thoughts in their mind. Uh, at the same time, they do metta and have unwholesome states in their mind. Did I get it, it right? Or? Yes. So we're talking about, in fact, Let's say it this way. Everyone has spent their whole life talking themselves into feeling bad, giving ourselves tasks to do, rules to do, learn your ABCs, pick up your toys, clean your room, uh, stop drawing on the wall, all kinds of stuff that we learned as childhood. We continue with that same set of rules that we learned as children, and we apply them to our own selves about what you're supposed to do. Get up out of bed, go to work, go do this, answer that email. And so we go around giving ourselves a lot of orders and things to do, and then we don't do them. Now, the one place where people are most likely to give themselves a lot of orders and things to do is when they're sitting in the, on the floor uh, trying to meditate. And, and But they're meditating with awareness, which means they see that email and they, yeah, I got to do that email. And then they yeah. think about, uh, in fact, it can get so bad that uh, the joke is, is uh, called the refrigerator door. What does that mean? That means is that the meditator is sitting there doing what he thinks is meditation. He's working pretty hard at it. And the next thing he realizes, he's got his hand on the refrigerator door. He got up off of the cushion and went into the refrigerator and opened the door. And that's when Sati hit him. <laughs> no Sati for all of the thoughts that got him into the, uh, into the kitchen, into the refrigerator. 
He may have been noting them, but he didn't wake up, really. So the, uh, this is not mindfulness. Real sati is more than mindfulness because it does have that quality of taking the effort to really investigate what's really going on in the mind and also the right effort to remove the unwholesome thought and to put wholesome thoughts in the mind. All right. The first sutra that I was telling you about, actually the name of it is uh, the snake simile, where the Buddha um, is referring to the simile of the snake is like the Dhamma. You've got to catch the snake by the head. If you catch a snake by its throat, it will bite you. You've got to have your hand on the head of that snake, up tight on the throat. If you give him in the middle or on the tail, he will bite you. Okay, and this is how most people grab Buddhism any old way they can, and they always get bitten by it. And and one of the bite marks is, I want enlightenment. I want something I don't have. Okay, uh, but when we grab it by the head, what that means is literally the grabbing, the seizing, the confronting. This is what we want to do with our thoughts. We want to actually take control to take one's right effort. All right, and we want to take that right effort in two ways. One is to seize the breath, and the other one is to seize the mind. We're going to start breathing wholesomely. We're going to start breathing deeply, long, deep, slow breathing. You follow, this is, in fact, if uh, you're going to be a medical doctor, this is the place to start studying some medicine. And that is, look at the way people breathe. Yeah. Watch how you do breathe. Notice that, uh, in fact, they have the, the rate is, is that normal people breathe about 20 breaths a minute. You probably heard that. Yeah. <laughs> huh? All right. So what we're looking at is to cut that in half from the very beginning is let's go down to 10. If we can do something like box breathing, which is a 442, or we can do the reverse of the box breathing, which is also a 442, that means four seconds on an in-breath, four seconds on an out-breath, and then two uh, uh, seconds between the in and the out-breath, or between the out and the in-breath, depending upon how you're doing it. If you're, in the, uh, if you're in the Marines or in the military, you want to do the count while you're holding the breath in. And when you're in meditation, you want to do the count of two after the out-breath before the in-breath. Hmm. But by doing a 442, that means that we're, down, we're at the count of 10. Well, at 60, that means that now we've reduced the amount of breathing from 20 breaths a minute down to about six. Much slower. If we go for a uh, five-five-three uh, 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 or a five-five-two, uh, then that's twelve. So that means we're down to five breaths a minute. If we go to eight-eight-four, which is a standard kind of place to stop, uh, eight on the in-breath, eight on the out-breath, and many will only break it on an in-breath up to about six, and that's okay. So you can do. Uh, uh, sort of an eight on the out breath, uh, two and the relaxing, six on the in breath, and two. So you could do a six, two, eight, four. 
is a way to do it, but we're winding up now at 20, which means now we're taking four breaths a minute. And this is a good place to rest. So now you're sitting in your doctor's office, breathing normally, and everybody else is doing this with their breathing, and you're doing this. Okay, we begin to slow down. We slow our breathing down, and we want to because there's a lot to do while we're breathing. So we actually, actually take control of the breath. This is an active meditation, skin in the game. An example would be um, playing a video game with you on your computer versus watching somebody else play the game. Okay, if you're just kempising, just watching somebody else play the game, it's really easy to get distracted and walk away. But if you're actually playing the game, you'll get right into it. All right? right? So this is how we have to understand this practice of Anapanasati is not about mindfulness. It's not about uh, awareness. It's not about noticing. It's about seizing, grabbing hold of, taking control of your life. One okay. point at a time, and the breathing is one of them, and the other one, I'll give you the story of, and that Keyshawn knows this, is actually a favorite, and that is the story of the cow herd. The Buddha talks about the cow herd in the sense of uh, the way that we um, do our thought process is like a cow herd taking his few cows to, the, to grazing. And he has to get out of the village, pass through the village, and keep these cows in line. If the cow does what he wants to do, then uh, the cow may step on a child. It may eat some food off of uh, some food stall. It may run into somebody's house. It could do anything on its own. So the cow herd has to keep those uh, cows in line. And so he does so with a stick. And he takes the effort. He whacks that cow to keep that cow from grabbing that uh, carrot off of the food stall, right? Because the cow herd knows that if that cow does damage, it's dangerous. That's a dangerous thing to let that cow go eat that stuff off of the, of the food stall. So we begin to control the mind this way, getting it in line, one wholesome thought after another that's not unwholesome, but we keep the mind in wholesome states. So now is the time to introduce again the idea that we, as children, learn to talk to ourselves, to get ourselves um, in the line that we think of in the sense of society's line. And by doing so, uh, we begin to... <clears throat> using the rules, the rituals, the way things are supposed to be, expectations and whatnot like that, we begin to talk ourselves into feeling bad. Go do this, I don't want to do it. You got to go do this, I don't want to do it. Okay, so we have these internal dialogues. Freud knew all about it. So did Eric Byrne. Many psychotherapists, they understand this internal dialogue. Go do this, I don't want to do it. I told you to go do this, I don't want to do it. And we have that dialogue in our heads a lot. And that's dukkha. That's suffering. Okay. We have to, literally been talking ourselves into feeling bad our whole lives. Now it's time to talk yourself into feeling good. And that is real sati. 
to notice that process and to stop to stop it by wholesome thoughts to stop it immediately okay. now the buddha had a particular phrase that he used and it's got a lot of history to it uh about when it happened why it happened in the udana uh it's a very interesting story about what the buddha was doing but it comes down to the statement of aha i see you mara aha i see that thought aha i see that email that i've got to write okay aha i see that uh, uh waiting for uh that package to arrive in the post aha i see myself shopping on ebay aha i see that okay so this aha i see you mara is um and by the way, when I said shopping on uh, on eBay, there's nothing wrong with shopping on eBay when you've got a computer. We're talking about when you don't have a computer and you're still thinking about shopping on eBay. And then we say, aha, <laughs> I see that. <laughs> am I going to sit here and enjoy myself or am I going to go uh, on to eBay and struggle? One or the other. But normally what people do is they will sit there 10 to 20 yards away from the the PC and they're still on the PC in their mind yeah. struggling trying to order something off of eBay that they can't order because they don't have a PC <laughs> like the dog that circles around <laughs> right like a dog chasing his tail exactly like that That's like exactly. when you get up from the bed right like they get up from the bed and they spin around and lay back down and do it again. And, <laughs> <laughs> and is the, tell you a story. Is, Go ahead. And is the basis of the practice watching the breath, knowing the in and out breathing, and like waiting on these unwholesome or just be exceedingly aware of these unwholesome things? Actually, uh, paying attention to what the body is doing while it's breathing and paying attention to it by talking ourselves about it is wholesome and is mm -hmm. part of the practice. Ah, so, okay. so things like, wow, this is a really nice breath. Wow, I really like this one. This is good. Mm -hmm. Oh, I feel so relaxed. All oh, the breeze on the arm feels really good. Oh, this is wholesome. Okay. This is very wholesome to have yeah. really good, wholesome, positive thoughts. Because the idea is, is that we're intentionally going to make ourselves feel good. We're going to bring on this state that I talked about earlier called sukha. Hmm. Okay. Sukha is exactly the opposite of dukkha. Dukkha is fear. Dukkha is anxiety. Sukha is feeling secure, feeling comfortable. Dukkha is being dissatisfied. Sukha is being satisfied. Dukkha is being uncomfortable. Sukha is being comfortable. And we, are, uh, as human beings, spend some parts of our day in, in comfort, in ease, and a whole lot of the time in dukkha. For most, I would say it's about an 80-20 ratio. And that people can, in fact, sit down and watch TV 
and go into a state of no mind. In fact, I would go so far when I say no mind or void mind, I'm talking about a completely wholesome state that may have some gaps in the thought. One of those times when the mind will do, and people will just so relax is when they're sitting on the toilet taking the dump. <laughs> but that's about the only time to do it. Other people will take a dump in a great big hurry. They got to get out of here. They're I've got stuff to do. And while they're sitting on the toilet, there's not just a bunch of shit coming out of their butt. There's a bunch of shit going on in the brain too. But a lot of people allow themselves to just relax. Okay. So that's what we're actually practicing for is intentionally to relax hmm. by talking ourselves into it. So one of the ways that we can do that is by uh, making the statement as I breathe in. This is so joyful. I breathe in joy. And as I breathe out, I relax, I relax. Okay. And that's very healthy breathing. It energizes uh, the blood. And it also, you know, that the bloodstream has things like carbon dioxide and other pollution, small molecules that are acidic. Amino acids, they call them. They're acidic, you know. <laughs> also, carbon dioxide in the blood of the, uh, the water of the blood causes carbonic acid. Right? So the, when the blood gets acidic, the, br the brain, the automatic brain will automatically, like when you're cl uh, climbing stairs or climbing uphill, we start to heave automatically. So the body does have a regulation for the breath, but normally what happens is, is that uh, a little dab will do you, just a little shallow breath. But what we're looking for here is, is that if we're going to have skin in this game, if we're going to do right effort, then we need to have some energy, have some energizing. So this is why we add this additional effort of right breathing. So as we can take in the oxygen and throw out the carbon dioxide and all of the other stuff that comes out with it. This is actually not just healthy for the mind, but it's healthy for the body. I would highly recommend this kind of breathing for people who have kidney problems, and I think you know why. Why? Because if the breathing can get rid of some of the work from the breathing that the kidneys will have to do, we're taking pressure off the kidneys because they both are doing the same job, purifying the blood. Hmm. So we are we're working there with the right effort. One's right effort is to start breathing wholesomely and to stop breathing unwholesomely, shallow breathing. Um, a way of thinking about it, and I don't know exactly the percentages, but I'd say that most people breathe from like a 40 to 60, maybe 35 to 65 range in the percentage. On an in-breath, they'll go up to maybe 65% of capacity, and on an out-breath, they'll go down to maybe 40%, 35%. We're going to do this much more like a musician in the sense of the, dip, uh, the diaphragmatic breathing so that we're going to be breathing more um, uh, deeply, that's going to be filling it up, say, from 40, uh, excuse me, from uh, like uh, 20 to 80, so that we fill up, not topping it off, just a nice deep in-breath, and then a nice long deep out-breath. But the important part is that it's relaxed, easy going. 
Not that it's got to be exactly one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two. I mean, that's military. That's box breathing. We're not doing it that way. This is easy going, easy peasy. Relax, relax. And we can use the kind of language to help us relax by using things like, isn't it marvelous? We can even go to the more sophisticated stuff like no place to go and nothing to do. Everything is all right. Everything's fine. No problems, no worries. Everything is great. Okay. We can also think of these kind of thoughts that are nurturing and wholesome thoughts would be uh, nurturing to where unwholesome thoughts would be thoughts of critical. Now, we do know that, in fact, critical thinking is quite useful in the West. We built our society on critical thinking. We built medical science. In fact, all of science is built upon critical thinking. So there's nothing wrong with critical thinking. The problem is, is when we turn that criticism on the inside and start criticizing ourselves on the inside, that's when it becomes unwholesome. And so we have to change the critical thinking of you should do this or you should do that or you need to go on a diet or you need to do this, that, or the other thing. We can just say everything's okay. Everything's fine. No place to go. Nothing to do. My, what a joyful breath this is. And it's so relaxing. And so we begin to talk ourselves literally into feeling good, into sukha. This is the practice of the Buddhists, very well spelled out in a number of suttas. In the sutta on right, um, uh, on the Eightfold Noble Path, right effort, right sati, right uh, uh, view, come together and work together. And then the fourth ingredient that's added is one's right attitude, which is the attitude of a winner. I can do this. Wow, this feels really good. So now we're mixing in the fourth ingredient that brings about this unify, unification of mind. And that is when you just feel really great. Why do you feel really great? Because you know how to feel really great. And if we were uh, awake enough and, making, and being discerning enough, then we would choose, how would you choose to feel? Would you choose to feel down in the dumps, depressed? Or would you feel choose to feel really great. So why don't you feel really great? It's up to you, you know. <laughs> and this is exactly the teaching of the Buddha in the Eightfold Noble Path, also in the Sutta that we mentioned on the simile of the snake. This is how to grab the, the Dhamma, is you've got to grab it. You've got to seize it. You've got to take control of the mind and put wholesome thoughts in there. You've got to take control of the breathing and make it long and deep and satisfying. And when we practice this way, we don't need to practice so long because we're practicing correctly right from the very beginning. For this reason, I would recommend instead of having a formal sitting practice of one hour a day, it's better to break it up, to take shorter sessions, So because Basically, this skill that we want, we don't want it only to be available while we're sitting on the floor. We want this available when the boss walks up. We want this available when that patient is dying right here in front of me. 
right? So it's a 24-7 practice. As... No, it's whenever you remember to practice. If okay. you say 24-7, you're setting yourself up for failure. That's dukkha 24-7. Okay. No, we practice this, and I'm glad I can remember to practice it right now. Even if I haven't mm. practiced it the last 24-7, I've still got it right now. That's okay. great. Okay. Let's take this time frame out of it. We're talking about right now. If I can remember right now to do it, then, and so this is why it's a skill to be developed. And so I would recommend six times a day for 10 minutes is the same as an hour. Except that now when we do it six times a day, we're remembering to do it. We freshen the mind six times during the day. We throw out all the hindrances six times a day. If we only sit for an hour, we're probably not going to be throwing hindrances out for 10 minutes even. Especially in the, the last half. That's when the mind gets tired. That's when the hindrances will come back and no mindfulness is there. And so most of the hour is going to be wasted by most of the people. And many people, the kinds of thoughts they're going to have is when is this going to be over? They open an eye and look at the clock. <laughs> they're always happy when the, when the meditation is over. What a relief it is not to have to meditate right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, so we have to come out of that whole mindset of doing things to get some value out of it and just spend 10 minutes at a time, six times a day, just enjoying the hell out of being alive. Really, really like what you're doing. Get out of our daily suffering and, and dissatisfactions and wanting things we don't have and just be satisfied and secure and safe and sound. And confident, I can do this. I can do this. Now, as we practice this, these skills will grow. But we have to practice the right skill in the very beginning. In other words, we, we cannot practice satisfaction while we're dissatisfied. Can't do it. We can only practice satisfaction while we're satisfied. But while we're satisfied, we can practice it and get even more satisfied. So, as that cow herd gets his cows out of the, um, in, uh, the town, he takes them to the grazing area where they can get all the rice stalks and the husk and whatnot that they want. Now the cows are going to start grazing. They've got their head down to the ground. The cow herd doesn't have to stand there with a stick anymore. In fact, he can go sit down under a tree and just watch the cows. Keep an eye on them because he already knows they're wholesome. This is also the same way that we practice out upon Asati is, is that once we have the mind one wholesome thought after another wholesome thought after another wholesome thought, one after another, on and on. And we know that we can do that for this 10 minutes. Now we can begin to put some gaps in those thoughts so that things begin to slow down even more, and that's even more relaxed. But you can see that we're going in that direction. We cannot just stop the mind when it's unwholesome. We've got to put it into a wholesome state. And when we have the confidence that we can control the mind and the wholesome, then we can begin to put some gaps in it. 
Okay, and this is the place to start. That's a very good place to start. Always the place to start is to make sure that you've got all the skills you need. The first three that you need is right view to inspect, to look at this thought, to remember to look at the thought. And if it's an unwholesome thought, to throw it out and put in wholesome thoughts. Now, the question is, when is a thought wholesome and when it's not? As I said before about the continuum, as your skill grows of your discernment, knowing what is dukkha and what is not dukkha, it will change. So that what you used to think was wholesome, but now is seen as unwholesome. But a way to get started would be just the general idea from the Buddha is anything, any thought that you have about the past is unwholesome. Any thought you have about the future is unwholesome. Any thought you have about right now is wholesome. That's an easy way to get started because we know for sure that that's true. Yeah. If you think about the past, then you'll think about something that you liked and then you'll miss it. If you think about something you don't like, then you'll feel bad from guilt or remorse or you'll feel bad because now you've got some kind of work to do. So it's better to stay out of the past. It's dangerous. And so we stay in the present moment. When we're in the present moment, we can also uh, do it in the sense of uh, with the Eightfold Noble Path and the Buddha Dhamma. The Buddha Dhamma is also very wholesome. In the sense of in this moment, we can say, ah, that's, that's suffering. I see it. That's the first noble truth. That's, in fact, what the Buddha says. Aha, I see you, Myra. That's the first noble truth right there. I can see that stuff. Now we take the right effort and throw it out. Well, guess what? In fact, we just took the right effort because now the thought is, aha, I see you, Myra, and we're not having, we're not stuck in that Myra anymore. All right? The analogy would be that the Myra is this, and I'm stuck in it. And so the mind is just turning and spinning and joining and what like that. And then Sati comes. We recognize it that. And then, oh, aha, I see you, Mara. We have disassociated ourselves. Now it's not me. Now it's just a thought. We recognize that I am not my thoughts. That I don't even have control over my thoughts. Not yet. So by the practice, insight comes itself. Mm-hmm. Is it like and, that? that well, you, that no, let's not talk about self right now. Uh, what self is, is when people get the idea that they can't change, that their, their mm. personality is fixed. Mm. And this whole teaching is, no, you're not fixed. You're a moving target. You're not solid. All right? You're ephemeral. Remember we were talking about uh, um, cause and effect? And when all the causes come together, the effect is there. All right. The effect is the self. If the things are put together as causality in such a right way, the effect is going to be a self. When we don't put things together that way, then there's no self created. Okay. Self comes up and down and up and down and up and down. Okay. And that when we're talking about what we're doing here, we're not talking about a self that is anatta. We're talking about it merely using conventional language. For instance, aha, I see you, Mara. 
it's not a me that sees it in the sense of a self. We're just using language. We could we could use the language like aha, there you are again, or even aha, you, or even aha, dukkha. So we don't have to use those pronouns, but we do have to do the waking up. The waking up to see what's going on, and then we can make a decision. Out you go. Uh-huh, I see you, Myra. Is, the Myra's already gone. Now what's the next thought going to be? Well, I'm glad I don't have to think about that anymore. Okay, so these are the new thoughts that we can have, the thoughts that are wholesome. Wow, I'm glad I saw that thought. Now I can come back to the third noble truth. Oh, isn't this so nice? No, Dukkha. Isn't it so nice not to have any worries, any problems? Everything is easy peasy. Life is wonderful. Mm -hmm. All right, so this is how we begin to practice. We have to make things wholesome. And if we don't, then it's just an awareness or a mindfulness or a um, noting practice. And okay. eventually that's that's dangerous. That one of the things can happen is, is that we can wind up in our own garbage pit with no place to go and nothing to do because all we can see is garbage. We've been noting so much garbage that that's the only thing we can see anymore. And that's the kind of a dark place to get into where we get full of fear, misery, disgust, and real desire to get out of this shit. Why can't we just get out of it with a little bit of desire and right effort? Instead of having to wait up to where I've got to have all of this really intense effort to get out of the shit. So, if I get you clear, so is it that Westerners practice more like Sampajana instead of Sati? Is it like that? That they are noting, I'm worrying, or isn't, isn't that Sampajana? Whatever, whatever, whatever they're doing, it does not fit into the teaching of Buddha, so there's no reason to put any... Uh, uh, Holly words on it. Yeah. It's just simply wrong practice. <laughs> I get that. Okay. Okay. Because it's, um, and that I'll also say this that the distinction between Vipassana and Samatha did not, ex did not exist in the time of the Buddha. Hmm. When it does show up in the suttas, it's showing up to refute the idea that there is a distinction between Vipassana samatha and yet we still have even later literature that just honks on and on about samatha and vipassana different meditations but there is no distinction in the uh in the sense that if your mind has hindrances your noting is of no value so it's not vipassana Okay, the noting that needs to be done is only noting wholesome things because there's only wholesome things left. That's Vipassana. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, Vipassana is the insight into dukkha. And when your insight is done, your dukkha is gone. That's Vipassana. Also, the only way that the dukkha can be gone is because you've gotten yourself into a particular state that has sukha, confidence, only wholesome thoughts that you can apply to the wholesome and sustain the wholesome. And I'm now just giving you a technical sutta definition of the first jhana. 
which is what they call samatha. So you cannot do Vipassana without Samatha, and you cannot do Samatha without Vipassana. Well, when you do Samatha without Vipassana, it's of no value. But that's, in fact, what was happening with the Buddha before he uh, was uh, uh, enlightened, that he already was able to do all the jhanas. And it didn't do him any good. And so he went off and did the austerities, and he found out for sure that was not the path. And then it dawned on him, oh, no, there is a place in the jhanas, that first jhana, where we can do the work, the vipassana, that needs to be done. Where we can really understand what the mind is all about, what consciousness is, what perception is, what is feeling, what is contact, what is awareness, what is sati, what is one's right effort. Okay, what are the jhana factors? These are the things that need to be noted. But most Westerners start off noting whatever there is to note. They're not doing the first step. They're like, it's like they're looking for an address in a city and they're going all over town trying to find this house uh, with this street and this number and all of that kind of stuff and they're in the wrong city. They're trying to find the address clearly says New York. And it talks about West 59th Street, you know. And here I am in Chicago looking for West 59th Street in New York. And I cannot find West 59th Street. Can't find it. This is how people are practicing meditation. They're in the wrong city. They're in an unwholesome city. And they need to get out of that unwholesome city into the right place, into the uh, wholesome. Once we're in the wholesome, then all the noting that's going to be done is going to be wholesome things. Because we're free of the unwholesome. It's like, why couldn't have I figured that out in the 1970s? <laughs> why did I spend so many years in meditation not knowing what the real issue was? So you're saying that the issue that the Buddha had was that, well, what was what was his issue? You said he was doing only uh, the jhana, but... Because, because when he would come out of jhanas, like all of the others, the only place to come back to was hindrances. Right. Hmm. So, the hindrance, so the jhanas weren't liberating because one cannot stay in the jhanas. But we can, but we can in fact, develop the first jhana. See, the, the, the old way of doing it, the way that all Westerners do it, the Buddha's way of having done it in the first place was, okay, we got first jhana, let's do second. Okay, third. Here we go, let's work really hard to get fourth, but we don't really have a foundation of first jhana. So that when the mind starts back up, it goes back into hindrances. So is, is that what you were saying? You said that he was doing the samatha only, so he was doing the jhana only, and then he'd come out of it. So what he did was he implemented the vipassana, so he was able to see see the dukkha of when you're coming out of it, so you could actually go back into it. Exactly. That, that in fact, uh, being able to be all, uh, let us say, throughout the day, whenever you remember to remove the unwholesome thoughts and put only wholesome thoughts in, and then you begin to develop the habit of having only wholesome thoughts. Mm. 
and you uh, leave off and let uh, uh, atrophy unwholesome ways of thinking. So that means that during the day, at any time, you can pop right into first jhana. It's a skill Mm -hmm. to be developed. And when do you do that? Any time that you recognize, oh, here comes an unwholesome thought, bango, first jhana. Yeah. So that is a fruit of a of the practice to feed on joy most of the time of a day. Yeah, just to stay joyful and happy and friendly all the time. Okay. I Whatever you're doing. If you don't, if, here's here's something that's kind of hard advice I know for most in the West. But it, if you're doing something that you don't like doing, then stop doing it right now and go get yourself into a state of liking. And once you get yourself into a state of liking, now you can come back and do that job until you begin to not like it anymore. And then you can quit doing it again. I mean, you can actually start getting a half a paragraph of an email written and you can say, I don't want to do this. And then you can just close your eyes and, ah, I'm glad I don't have to do that email right now. Ten minutes later, I could pop up and say, well, I'll do a little more. I, I thought about something and then I'll go uh, do uh, another paragraph or so and then i say, but I don't want to do any more of this. And so I can stop and I can come back and get myself into a state of great joy. Mm, okay. And if we approach everything we do already in a state of great joy, that's a whole lot more wholesome state to be in because most of the stuff that we do, we don't do it starting with great joy. We do it out of reluctance. But we do it because we're supposed to. Yeah. We're following some stupid rule or doing something uh, because we have a thought that tells us, you got to go do that. And so if you can get yourself into the state to where you like this present moment, then you can attempt any activity until you begin to not like it and then stop. And pretty soon you can get yourself through almost any kind of activity and still be in a state of liking because you've been practicing. Yeah, wow. And then you get yourself to the point of it does not matter what comes into the mind. I can clean that stuff out and come back to a happy state. And this is an important point. This is right. This is when right attitude really kicks in. When the attitude is, is it does not matter what job there is to be done or how bad things look. I can throw those kind of thoughts right out of the mind and get myself back into a state of joy immediately. Just pop back again. Jack in the box. Bung on, and I'm here again. All I have to do is just remember, hey, I don't have to do that crap. And when I'm talking about do that crap, I'm not talking about writing the email. I'm talking about suffering my way through writing the email. If you do, if you do uh, suffer your way through the email, I'm just kind of seeing that now it's just like you're training the wrong. You're training yourself to feel bad, basically, while trying to train yourself to feel good. Like some of the time, it's gonna be like a battle, you know. Like if you if you really do things you don't want to do. Exactly. Why do you write the email? You'll say, "Oh well, I'll feel so good after I finish it. Then I won't have to do it." Well, you don't have to do it right now. 
You don't have to do it right now. Stop and feel good right now. It's not the email, finishing the email, that's going to make you feel good. It's the feeling and the thought of completion and a job well done right now that gives you that sense of satisfaction and well-being, not the actual effort that it takes because there's always more emails to write. Are we going to, do we have to do that? I mean, how, how good do you feel after you write that one email? Feel good for 10 seconds, and now it's time to write another email that takes five minutes, and then I feel good for 10 seconds, and then another five minutes writing another email, and now I feel good for 10 seconds? That's not the right way to go. Why don't we just get ourselves into feeling really good and then write the email for a little while until we don't feel so good? Mm. Then we get ourselves back into feeling good again. This is why I would say practice six times a day just for the start, because what's going to happen is, is that in between times you'll remember, you'll start to remember. Oh, I, I can, I, I don't have to spend ten minutes right now, but I can spend ten seconds. I can spend one minute. I just sit here and just relax and feel good. Sure. Yeah. So this is the way to practice. This is how we do it. This is when we're really putting uh, some skin in the game, and the game is this Eightfold Noble Path. Which, by the way, it's not even a path. That's a part of the problem with uh, Buddhism in the West, is bad translations. It's not a path. It's a method. Hmm. A method is something that you can do right now. Like, how do you unlock the door? The method is you take the key, you put the key in, you turn the key, and the door opens. It's like the one-two punch. <laughs> it's a one, right, the one-two punch, and there it is. To where uh, normally we think that uh, the door that's to be opened is a thousand miles from here, and I got to go take this path that lasts a thousand miles before I get to the door. All right? The Eightfold Noble Path is not that kind of path. Is not the path to the door, it's the path of opening the door, the method of opening the door. And the door is always right here, right now. Not off there someplace. If it's off in the distance, that means that it's either in the past or in the future. Even to get to the door takes work and it takes time and it takes effort and it takes, you know, to get there. So that's off in the future. The door is right open, the door right here. That's why it's not a path, it's a method. Yeah. Um, I have a practical question. Let's say okay. I'm driving to work and if I got you right, then it's like, let's say I'm worrying, then on the bicycle I'm noting the worrying and put something wholesome like relax or may I be happy, something like that. And this is the practice? All right. Exactly. Let us say that you're, uh, you say, riding a bicycle to work? I was thinking of the Autobahn, but never mind. Bicycle, that's good enough. <laughs> Imagine that while you're riding the bicycle, right in front of you or uh, to the, on the side of the curb or the side of the road, there is something especially, especially ugly. Okay, something like Donald Trump or... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or a dead smelly carcass that's several days old that nobody's picked up yet or something that's really repulsive. Once we see that thing, the easy thing to do is just to turn the eyes, to avert the eyes. It's that easy. You don't have to look at him. You don't have to look at Donald Trump. 
You can look at something else. Okay, so while you're driving to work or riding your bike to work and you have an especially ugly, unwholesome thought, just divert your mind's eye. Look at something else. In fact, take it out of the mind's eye into the physical eye. Watch where you're going. I would rather you watch where you're going and be here now on your bicycle than thinking about something ugly. Definitely, yeah. Okay. So, uh, uh, while riding the bike, you can uh, have that as, as part of the anchor. Okay, while I'm on this bike, I'm going to watch the road. I'm going to pay attention. I'm going to be here now. I'm going to be mindful of my breathing, and I'm going to have only wholesome thoughts while I'm riding the bike. And any time okay, that so... an unwholesome thought comes up, I'm going to divert my eyes. I'm going to take my attention away from it. Aha, I see you, Myra, and out you go. Okay, so like you said, the the anchor is the riding the bike or sitting and doing meditation and being aware. And the the second thing is noting or, or recognizing, be aware of unwholesome thoughts. That is the second one and replace it. And replace it with wholesome thoughts. That's right. Okay. Whack now that cow, get those cows in line. Okay. Well, thank you for this very clear teaching. So I really feel to have a good point to start right now. Well, this is a good stopping point. We've been at it about an hour and a half, so this is a good time to stop. Keyshawn, do you have any uh, additional questions or anything? Um, I was going to say two things, because you mentioned like the the practicing six times a day. And I was just going to say um, to Peter that like when you when you do the when you when I do the practice like multiple times a day, it's nice because it's like you get like a a burst of sati. You have it there at least, you know, and then so for this period and be for this next, you know, however many minutes you kind of got a lot of remnants of some good good feelings and some good sati. So you can kind of bring it in mindfully into what you're doing. And so it's, you can kind of carry it through. Whereas like if you just do like the one in the morning or whatever, then it's like you got to fend for yourself the rest of the time. And you're just <laughs> you're out of <laughs> you're out in the wilderness. So if you okay, keep home over and over again, you still at least you don't get too homesick, <laughs> you know? Okay, I get and that. Next, yeah. So in in this way, uh, let us call this whole thing, this practice, we call it Anapanasati. And then the general frame of reference would be Dhamma or Buddha Dhamma. And so this is what we do here is we do Dhamma and we do Anapanasati. And you can see that, in fact, it's quite different than what people normally refer to as meditation, which is done in a certain posture with certain things, uh, doing um, uh, a certain practice like mindfulness or um, uh, contemplation, some kind of practice like this. But this is different. This is Anapanasati. Uh, mindfulness, uh, if you have to use the word mindfulness, uh, of breathing right from the very beginning. That, we're, that It's not just mindfulness of breathing, but mindfully or intentionally breathing in long. 
and intentionally, mindfully breathing out long so that we're mm -hmm. actually putting skin in the game now. It's not just a mindfulness practice. Okay. And so this is why it's different. This is not meditation. I do not teach meditation. I'm not a meditation teacher. <laughs> I, I, if anything, I teach liberation. <laughs> but not so liberation in, in the long-term sense. It's liberation right now. This is how we come to be liberated in this moment. Okay, so, uh, Keyshawn, we'll see you later then. Yeah, the next thing I was going to say was that uh, this has been a wonderful, a really great uh, uh, hour here. And um, it's my birthday on Saturday, but I don't think that I'm going to get a better gift than this one. So it's really, thank you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> really appreciate it. Yeah, me Excellent. too. Definitely. Okay, guys. Well received. This is really great. I'm really, I'm, I'm pleased. I'm glad that people get great benefit out of this. Yeah. Hopefully, see you soon, Bande. I would like to see that. When are you going to call back, Peter? Um, like tomorrow. Is that okay with you? How about a, every couple of days, twice yeah. a week, something like that. Yeah. Okay. So, like, to the weekend. Yeah, so go practice for a while. Get this, get some meat under your uh, uh, <laughs> under your skin, I guess. <laughs> okay, thank you so much, Bunta. Thank you. Okay. See you guys. Bye bye. See you. See you.